Well, good morning, Harvest Muskoka, Harvest Perry Sound. Why don't you go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to Revelation 19. Revelation, easy to find, last book in the Bible. So you flip right to the very back, you'll find Revelation. We're going to be in chapter 19 this morning. We'll talk a bit about Genesis, but you don't need to turn there. But grab a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, throw your hand up. Grab one of these Bibles that our ushers have. We'd love to get a Bible into your hands. So if you forgot your Bible or didn't bring a Bible, grab one of these. If you don't own a Bible for sure, grab one of these to take it home with you as our gift to you. And turn to Revelation 19. Revelation 19, and we're, we're wrapping up this series called Erasing Shame. And I think Pastor Lee did such an amazing job to start off our series, and, and, he, and he really just caused a, a, brought us a, a clear definition of, okay, here's what shame looks like in our lives. Here's the origin of shame, that, that shame is this, this deep feeling of being flawed or, or, or being unclean or, or being exposed or being on the outside and you can't get inside. You can't look in. and In fact, you don't even want to. You don't want people to look over at you. And, and the shame spills out into how we view God, how we view ourselves, how, how we view our community, and we've seen in this series that shame enters the world immediately because of sin. That right away in Genesis, because of sin, the first reaction, the first impact of that sin was shame. Adam and Eve hiding, covering. And what we've seen as we've been in this series, we've been digging down deeper into shame, is that we've been seeing that shame affects us all. Through, through so many conversations over these last few weeks with so many people, emails and phone calls and, and just grabbing somebody for coffee, just hearing story after story of, of pain caused by shame. And, and, and for some of us, it, it may hit you every single day and it touches every part of your life and you can identify, man, there's the shame. For some of you, it doesn't feel like shame lives in you, but shame visits a lot. And you can think, man, what's up with this church? How come we're so, so full of busted up, broken, shame-filled people? Listen, we're not a weird church. It's, it's, it's seen in our culture at large. And the shame can come from, from things that you've done where, where you carry regret, regret over things you've said, regret over things you've done, things you've thought. It can come by, from things done to you, maybe words spoken over you or, or an action done to you that it was a shameful act done to you and yet you carry the effects of it. You carry the shame. And last week, Lee was so, so clear in, in showing us that we scramble so much, so hard, looking for ways to cover up this shame. And we engage in this, this long list of broken behaviors as we grab anything, any kind of fig leaf to cover this shame up. And, and what do we do? We start blaming other people. We, we go after perfectionism. We, we hide behind lies and we, we compensate with success, with work, with power. We can run to addictions, to eating disorders, anything to take away the sting of shame. And you see this play out in Genesis 3 right away that Adam and Eve try to cover their shame. They, they grab these, these fig leaves to make makeshift loincloths. They, they hide from God in the garden. And this relationship they had with God, this, this perfect relationship with God's impacted by this shame. This, this intimacy has been broken. And they, they find themselves now on the outside of, of what was such an intimate relationship, hiding from God. But it didn't just break the relationship between them and God, it broke the relationship between each other as well. 
And shame caused them to hide from each other. They used to be naked and unashamed. Now they're hiding from each other and they're, and they're, they're saying, man, man, my, my hiding, my covering isn't doing enough. So what do they do? They started to blame each other. Remember, God calls them out going, hey, why are you guys hiding? And right away, Adam's like, first he blames God. Well, it's this wife you gave me. That's the problem. He, he blames her. Then Eve is like, well, uh, but me, no, it's, it's, it's this serpent. They blame each other. They blame God. They blame Satan. Anything to get the eyes of God off of them. Anything to get the eyes of each other off of them so they wouldn't be seen in their shame. And, and now, now because of this relationship that's been broken, every one of us carries around this voice of condemnation in us. And we do everything we can to hide. But the fig leaves don't work. They're always falling apart. They're a little bit too drafty. They don't quite cover us up enough. They just don't work. And the tragedy we see at the end of Genesis chapter 3, God sends Adam and Eve out of the garden, out of that place of peace, out of that place of hope and joy, out of that place of where they were naked and unashamed. It says at the end of Genesis chapter 3, it says, He placed an angel with a flaming sword that, that guarded the entrance back into that place of relationship, that, that place where shame could be cleansed away, that place where Adam and Eve could face each other and face God without shame. And there's, there's this angel with a sword guarding that way back. And so we have to ask now, if that's how it ends, is there any hope for us? Do, do I have any hope to cover this shame? What will God do? Where can my hope come from? And it's here that we come to the end of the story. If Genesis was the start of the story, we're now in Revelation where we see the whole thing wrapped up, the end of the story. And, and John, one of Jesus' disciples, writing, writing this letter to a group of people, really caught in the same place we are in, this group of people who are, who are east of Eden. They, they, they've been kicked out like we are. They're not, they're not able to get back into that place of peace and hope and joy. They're, they're facing all kinds of suffering. They're looking for hope, looking for covering, looking for a restored relation with God and with each other. And John says, well, let me, let me tell you how it all ends. And, and we, we read eschatology. Eschatology is a big word for end times doctrine, for, for, for how things are going to wrap up. We, we read eschatology not just for the theological buzz of digging into prophecy. It's, it's written to give us hope. It's, it's written to give us that hope in a place where, where we're not there at the fulfillment of what we've been promised yet. We're still here. Yeah, yeah, we're on the other side of the cross, so we know the promise that's been given to us, but we're still on this side of heaven and, and revelation, prophecy, eschatology given to us. Say, no, no, there's hope. It changes the way you live today as you look forward to what the ultimate fulfillment will look like. And so if you have your Bibles open to Revelation 19, let's read the first eight verses there. It says, After this I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, which means praise the Lord. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. 
And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory for the marriage supper of the lamb, for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. We see here at the end, there's this picture of a wedding. Now, it's a, it's a bit of a weird wedding. We've got some, some things going on at this wedding that are, that are kind of different. You don't usually see them at weddings. You, you, you hear about a prostitute. It's a different wedding, all right? There, there's a lamb here. Like, what, are they eating lamb? What's it, no, there's, was there, there's a lamb. What, what's going on? What, what's happening in this wedding? If you're taking notes, here's, a, here's our first point this morning. It's this, the problem of shame and our own covering. The problem of shame and our own covering, the things we grab to try to cover our shame. And, and we get here to Revelation, we're talking about this wedding and it's interesting because all through scripture, we hear God saying, listen, I don't just wanna be your king. I, I don't just wanna be a shepherd for you. I, I, don't, wanna, I don't want us to relate just like a king relates to, its sub, to his subjects. I, I wanna relate to you like a husband relates to a wife. All through scripture, you see this imagery of, of marriage, of a, a wedding, of, of God wanting this, this permanent relationship, this intimate relationship. And remember back to Genesis 3, what were they? They were naked and unashamed. There's this, this picture of this beautiful marriage where they're totally vulnerable to each other. They know each other, they see each other, they care for each other. This, this relationship, it's deeper than any other relationship we have on earth. And God says, yeah, that's the kind of relationship I want with you. And when you understand your relationship with Christ in that picture, that kind of imagery, it, it begins to shed light on what sin really is. It begins to shed light on when I grab for other things to cover my shame, what am I really doing? I mean, if, if we understand this, this image of marriage, it, it makes it clear what this prostitute at this wedding is all about. Because sin essentially is adultery. When we reach horizontally, when, when we reach for things other than Christ to cover ourselves, when, when at the very heart of our life, at our motives, the, that, that place at the center where, where we grab other things that have a greater weight, a greater love, a greater affection than God, it's sin. And God said, I don't want you just to obey me like a subject obeys his king or her king. I want you to love me with this unbelievable love. Love me completely like I've loved you completely. So, so imagine this, this image of, of marriage then. Imagine a wife. And she finds out her husband has been spending every night out with a prostitute. And he's been sharing his life with her. He's been opening his heart up to her. He's been sharing a bed with her. He takes her on vacations. They, they talk about their dreams and aspirations. And, and the wife finds this out and confronts him. And, and the husband says to the wife, I, I don't know what you're so mad about. I'm still your husband. 
I pay the mortgage. You have my name. I, I, you have my money. I, I do my duty. I mow the lawn. I take care and, and parent the kids. Like, come on, what's the problem? I mean, can you imagine that scenario? And then the wife thinking, what kind of marriage is this? I don't have your heart. Other women have your heart. Other women have your deepest affections. And, and, and we look at that scenario, and we could look at the husband and go, you're a doughhead. What are you thinking? And yet, what about us? Oh, oh I believe the Bible. I, I gave my heart to Jesus. I, I go to church. I, I give money. I pray. I, I, I read God's word. I, I serve And yet there's other things that have your passion. Your heart is actually elsewhere. And at the center of your heart are things like your career, your family, a relationship, a social cause, a ministry. There's this desire and, and we grab these things and we take them into our heart. And, and so often as, as we've been walking this series on shame, we grab them to cover ourselves, to make ourselves feel better, to, to say something about our identity, to, to, to grab a hold of as these coverings. And in other words, we're married to God, but we're going to prostitutes. But, but, but I need this so I can be understood, but I, I need this so, so that I can be accepted. I need this so I can be known. I, I need this. And God's like, God, you're married to me. Why is your heart being given out to them? And God's like, I, I want a close, intimate relationship with you. I, I want you as my bride. I mean, think, think about what marriage represents. Think about what it looks like. Marriage is, is legally binding. It's this, this thing where, where two people legally become one person. So you could come into a marriage and have nothing, be, be totally poor, and you marry somebody rich, and guess what? You're now rich, right? You, you, you're together, you're wealthy, and, and we come into this marriage with Christ, and we bring nothing but sin and shame and brokenness, and he has everything, and we come into that marriage, and he goes, now you have it all. You have righteousness, you have my goodness. You have all the riches of glory. But, but my marriage isn't just a legal thing. It, it changes your whole life. I was married a little later. I was 28 when I, when I got married. So I had 28 years of, of really learning how to live a single life. And when I got married, one of the, the difficult changes for me was to realize that, oh, what do you mean? I can't make all the decisions on my own. What do you mean I gotta tell you when I'm gonna be late? Right? I'm still working on that one, by the way, right? <clears throat> you get that? If, if you're married, you get that? Where, where now everything changes. It's no longer just about you. Now it's about the two of you. And, and it's the same thing as we're, we're married with God. God's saying, listen, I'm not just a part of your life. I impact every part of your life. Marriage is intimate. Marriage is not just that piece of paper you get at the end of your wedding ceremony. There's love, there's intimacy. And so my question is this, do you have that kind of relationship with Christ where, where his love explodes in your heart? So, so you talk to him all the time in prayer. You're in his word because, man, I wanna, I wanna know you more. But listen, listen, when we sin, when we go horizontally and when our hearts are drawn to horizontal things, the Bible says that's adultery. You're, you're pursuing spiritual prostitutes. 
I mean, think about it. It's, it's one thing to be, to be friends with your career. It's another thing to go to bed with your career. It's one thing to, to love your spouse and your kids. It's another thing to expect them to bear the weight of your soul and to, to speak to you all your heart needs. It, it's spiritual adultery when, when we say, this is what fills me up. This is what makes me feel like I'm a person. This is what makes me feel whole. And I get it, when, when you think about it in, these, in this way, when you, you think about prostitution, it, it's an ugly imagery. It's a horrible way to think about it. But, but until you understand this biblical imagery of, of marriage, of what a relationship with God really is like and what you were truly created for, until we really understand what sin actually is, when you read in the Old Testament about a prophet named Hosea and God said, hey, Hosea, marry a prostitute. And he marries a prostitute. Why? So that, so that the people would see what they were like because this prostitute would go and spend her time with other men and God would say to Hosea, bring her back. Bring her back, clean her up, love her, and bring her back. It's, it's a horrible image, but it's the image of, of when we truly start to understand what this relationship is like between us and God, we start to really see what sin is. If we don't get it in these terms, we won't get it. Here's the thing, this, this spiritual adultery, it, it's at the root level. We're seeking to meet desires, to cover shame. To, it's, it's, it's at the, the level of our motives and, and it, it, the effects of it. We, we can see how that, that deep level root problem of going horizontally, we can see the fruit of it. How we interact with others, how we view ourselves, how we view God. But, but this, this idea of shame, it's really at a root level. I'd say it this way, and, and some of you have heard this before, where, where if you think of yourself as a tree, and, and the fruit of the tree, the fruit of your life, those are, those are your actions. You see it in Adam and Eve, the, the action that came out was blame, was hiding. That, that, that's the fruit of the tree. There's then a, a trunk of the tree, and, and that's what's growing this fruit, and the, and the trunk, they're the thought themes that, that you've developed over time. They're, they're the things spoken over you, the things spoken to you, the things that you say to yourself, the, the family dynamic and systems that you've embraced as you've grown up. That, that's the trunk. That's the thoughts. But the roots are where it all begins, the motives, the desires. It's, it's what drives those thoughts and those actions. It's at the roots that shame does its work. Why? Because shame speaks to the core of your identity and your desires and, and the, the fruit. We, we see that all over the place. We see the fruit of us trying to grab the cover. We, we see it in, in workaholism. We, we, we see it in, and man, I, I wanna live and look like the, the perfect Pinterest life. I want to be the greatest homeschool mom the world has ever seen. I want to be the most involved public school parent that this town would ever know. I, I want to have the best kids. I want to be the most powerful. I want to be the most likable. And, and we grab a hold of, that's the fruit of what's going on at the root. Or, or we grab a hold of bitterness for people who have hurt us. Or we desperately care so much about the opinions of other people. And you could see this in, in one of two ways. You, you care so much about what other people think, either in the, I'm gonna prove everybody wrong, right? Yeah, yeah the, 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 what my parents said about me, man, I'll show them they're not right. 
How my whole family's been, man, I'm gonna be different. I'll show them. That's one way. You care so much about the opinions of others. The other way is, is man, I'll be whatever you want me to be. What do I need to do so that I can fit in? What do I need to say? How, how can I please you? And it's fruit of roots that have been hurt and poisoned by shame. We go after stuff. We go after relationships. We go after sin. We go after standards. We go after control. All that fruit. It's a root problem. So, so here's what I want us to do this morning as we, as we track through this. Begin to start that, that, that process, that, that, that looking deeper beneath the fruit, looking under the action. See, what is it that drives my anger? What's the desire that I'm really looking to fulfill as I, as I pursue sin? What is it that drives my need for acceptance? What is it that, that causes the fights and the quarrels that I see around me? What is it that causes the greed, the lies, the hiding, the blaming, the apathy, the anxiety? What identity are you striving for? What, what desire? What's the motive at the root? Because listen, what's gonna bring deeper transformation than just dealing with the fruit, just dealing with the actions is when we look beneath the actions. When, when we start to ask these questions of ourselves, hey, what was I thinking when I was doing that? Maybe go even deeper than that. What, what was I looking to accomplish? What was the desire beneath that action that caused me to act out like this? What was it that I was really grasping for? These are questions we can ask ourselves. These are questions with, with those we're walking alongside we can ask. Instead of always jumping on the fruit, man, stop doing that. We can say, hey, what was going on in your heart? We can spend so much time working on the fruit, so much time in behavior modification. So much time in the, hey, when that desire comes, just do this instead. Hey, when that thought comes to you, create this picture of something so much better and think this way. And listen, it will work for a time. Like a fig leaf, it, it, it'll cover a little bit. But listen, it's spiritual prostitutes we're searching for. And, and while they may feel good for a time, they will eventually fail. And here's the thing, you will not just not have it work. You're gonna be deeper in guilt and shame and brokenness because at the root level, there's still shame and there's still sin driving those actions. So here we find ourselves. We're, we're deeply wounded, we're deeply marred, we're, we're deeply impacted by shame and we see that it's at the root level. But here's our second point this morning, that there's hope, the, the hope of God's love cleansing and covering. There's the hopelessness of our own, the, the, the problem of shame, and we're trying to grasp for our own things. We're seeking spiritually after prostitutes to try to cover this shame, but there's, there is true hope in God's love, in God's cleansing, in God's covering. So here we see it in, in Revelation 19, there's this picture of a wedding party, this celebration and there's not just a prostitute. You saw there the prostitute was judged, was dealt with, was taken care of. There's also a bride. Listen, Christ follower, you are the bride. That's you. You're no longer dirty. Your shame is no longer exposed. Look at verse 8. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. 
The the bride dressed in pure white, covered and clean, brought into the party to, to celebrate this marriage. It means, listen, listen, you're loved, you're accepted, you're transformed. You're the bride. Now, now here's the thing. I, I, I get it. Dudes find it hard to imagine themselves as a bride, right? And you're like, I'm coming in a wedding dress? This is, I can't even think that way, right? But here's, here's, when you look at the scripture, there's so much imagery we all have to wrap our heads around. We're called sheep, right? right? Ladies have to deal with the fact that, hey, you're called firstborn sons, right? So here we are, a bunch of sheep, a bunch of sons, and a bunch of brides. So deal with it, okay? Kind of figure it out, all right? Get, get the imagery of what's happening here. And how amazing this is. Here, you and I stand as brides, covered, clean, standing in the presence of God. I love in the book of Hebrews, it says that we can boldly come into God's presence. And so you think about a bride. A bride doesn't come in crawling. A bride doesn't come in kind of sheepish. No, a bride walks in. Everybody stands and looks, and and she walks in, and and she's not worried. Is is the groom at the front there? Is he going to accept me? Is this thing going to work out? No, she's just so excited to see the beaming face of the one who loves her so much, and she loves him so much. When you think about the Old Testament, how, how... you would come into the presence of God. In the Old Testament, before Christ, a high priest only once a year went into the Holy of Holies to see God. And and he didn't go in boldly and confidently. No, no, he went in, honestly, with a rope tied around his ankle in case he died in there, they could drag him out. You kind of went in with fear and trembling. But now we're covered, we're clean, we're in a relationship with God. Now how is that possible? How do we go from being kicked out of the garden because of sin? How how do we go from being ones who have constantly gone after prostitutes and now we get to walk into the wedding as a pure bride? Look at verse seven, it's the key. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come. Now what's a lamb doing at the wedding? We're marrying a lamb here. Listen, listen, the only thing that will turn you from an adulterer, from someone who who is continually pursued spiritual prostitutes, the only thing that will turn you into a pure bride is the blood of Jesus Christ. The lamb is the sacrificial animal. The the only thing that will cure us from reaching for more fig leaves horizontally, the only thing that will bring us into white robes is the blood of Jesus Christ. Now remember, let's go back to the garden. So when, when Adam and Eve were sent out of the garden, what was guarding the garden? There was an angel with a sword, all right? Not, not a wall that you have to climb up over to get back in. Not, not something you have to strive for to do it, but there's a, a sword. You have to go under a sword. Now the sword in Scripture always refers to the justice of God. That there's a debt to be paid. And so again, as the, in the Old Testament, as the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies, he only did so with a blood sacrifice. A sacrifice would be made, a debt needed to be paid. And the only way we can ever get back into the garden under that sword is if justice is satisfied. God's a just God. The debt needs to be paid. We have to go under the sword. And, and here is where we find our hope that, that on, on a dark night, Jesus, the perfect lamb, the the lamb to end all lambs, it says in Hebrews, Jesus, the lamb was cast out. and, and, And he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was stripped naked. Jesus literally went under the sword as he went under the nails, under the crown of thorns. He shed his blood. 
So scripture now says, therefore we have this confidence to enter the holy place, listen, by the blood of Jesus, a new and living way opened up for us through the curtain. So let us draw near with full assurance of faith. When Jesus died, that, that curtain, that veil that, that stopped us from going to the Holy of Holies tore in two from top to bottom because Jesus went under the sword. Because Jesus took the sword. Because the sword guarding the Garden of Eden, guarding that place of intimate relationship with God, he took the sword for us. So we don't have to cover ourselves anymore. We don't have to blame. We don't have to hide. We don't have to strive to be clean and covered. We are clean. We are covered. We get eaten again. And, and not because of anything we've done, but because of what the lamb did. So quickly, what does this mean today? Like, like, how does seeing the cross in the past, seeing this, this wedding feast in the future, how, how does that change my today? Well, in the Gospels, you, you see Jesus at another wedding. Maybe you remember the story. Jesus at a wedding with his mom, and, and, uh, and they ran out of wine at the wedding. Now, wine really is a symbol of joy in Scripture. So if, if you think of it this way, no wine, no joy, right? So, so Jesus' mom, Mary comes up to Jesus, and she's like, hey, hey, Jesus, they ran out of wine. And Jesus says to, to Mary, my time has not come. Actually, he says, woman, I've never said this to my mom before, right? Woman, my time has not come. What's he saying, my time has not come? It's another way of saying, woman, woman, I'm not ready to die yet. So imagine, Mary, hey, hey, Jesus, like they've run out of wine here. Like, what do you think you can do? And he goes, I'm not ready to die yet. Uh, okay, <laughs> all right. I heard one commentary, one commentator say this, that, that at that wedding, Jesus was like any other single person at a wedding. Have you ever been a single person at a wedding? And, and, and often, what are you thinking of? You're thinking about, hey, what's my wedding gonna be like? That, that, that Jesus, in this moment, he's sitting at this wedding, and his mind is not thinking about what's going on there. He's thinking about Revelation 19, what we're reading right now. He's thinking about the wedding that, that's coming. He's thinking about his bride. And he's saying, yeah, yeah, there is no joy at a wedding without wine, but for my bride to drink the cup of joy, I'm gonna need to take the cup of judgment. He says, my time hasn't come for me to die yet. The, the way for us to experience the joy of Eden is that we fall into the arms of our true spouse. We, we fall into the arms of the one who drank the cup of judgment for us, so we get the Eden cup of joy. And our hope is that, our hope is that gospel truth. The pathway from shame to joy is to turn from those fig leaves to the true covering we have in Christ. To, to turn from the, from the prostitutes to our true spouse. The, the Bible uses this word, it calls, call, calls it repentance. Here we spent now four weeks talking about shame and the problem of shame and laying out. It's a deep root problem. The solution, it's gonna sound simple, but it is difficult, but it is simple. Repentance is our solution. Repentance, it just means to turn. It means to turn to go in another way. It means to change your mind, change your actions, change your thoughts, change your heart, and you turn. So what are we turning from? We're turning from those fig leaves we're grabbing. We're turning from the, those games we play that, that Lee laid out for us last Sunday. We turn from those things. The things that I've been grabbing. 
and we turn to where our hope is found. We see the fruit and begin to say, what's at the root? What am I grabbing a hold of? In my anger, what am I grabbing a hold of? In, 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 in my apathy, in, in my pride, in, in, my, in my lust, in, in, in my anxiety, what am I trying to grab a hold of? And, and seeing those desires and motives and seeing that's not where I find life and it's repentance. I'm turning from that to the gospel. Now, it's easy, but very difficult. It's a simple, I know I just need to turn from that, yet, yet it, it can be so hard. It's, it's hard in this way. One, it's hard because it's a, a matter of exposing what you've been going for. It's a matter of saying, here's the prostitute. This is what I've been spiritually going after. And, and, and we've been talking through the series of how important it is to, to bring your shame into the light, that, that we need to do that. And, and uh, social psychologists are talking about that even now and, and saying, hey, this is our hope. Our hope is bringing shame out. Don't hide it any longer. Bring it into the light. Name your shame. They're saying, this is our hope. And, and they're right to an extent, man. That is the first step. We do need to do that, but, but we don't stop there. We expose it and we turn from it. We expose it and we repent from it, but it's, it's a difficult process. It's, it's, it's believing more. It's putting more weight on. It's, it's, it's turning to something you say, no, I'm going to believe. Even though I feel this and hear this all the time, I'm going to turn from that because I'm going to believe what Christ says more. And, and we've held on to these fig leaves so long, it's painful to release them, to turn towards Christ. There's a... Part of the story uh, in Voyage of the Dawn Treader, where you, where you see this happen, you see this idea of repentance and the pain and healing of the repentance. Maybe you remember this, where, where Eustace had, had turned into a dragon. Right? He, he had gone after so many horizontal things, really. Sin had so taken over his life, he had actually turned into a dragon, and he spent time trying to rip them off himself, right? Basically trying to cover himself horizontal ways, and as he tears them off, more scales grow. And he tears off more scales, and more scales grow, and he can't do it, and it's hurting him. And, and Aslan says, says this, you'll have to let me undress you. So desperate was Eustace, even his fear of Aslan's claws was not enough to stop him from laying flat on his back. And so he lays down on the ground and, and, and here's what Eustace felt. It says this, the very first tear he made was so deep, I thought it had gone right into my heart. And then he began pulling the skin off and it hurt worse than anything I'd ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. Maybe you've experienced this with sin and shame. It says, when he peeled the last beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I had done the three other times when he tried to do it himself, only when he did it, it didn't hurt so bad. But there it was lying on the grass, only so much thicker, so much darker than the others had been. And there I was as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I'd been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on and he threw me into the water and it smarted like anything but only for a moment and after that it became perfectly delicious and as soon as I started swimming and splashing I found that all the pain had gone from my arm and then I saw why. I turned into a boy again. After a bit the lion took me out and dressed me in new clothes. That's a picture of repentance. 
So what's this, this look like for us? Real quickly, three, three things it's gonna look like. What, what does the pathway of repentance look like? If I'm gonna take this pathway out of shame into joy, what's it look like? First is this, fully acknowledge the weight of your sin. Fully acknowledge the weight of your sin. I mean, David in, in Psalm 51, he's asking for joy, restore the joy of my salvation, but he acknowledges this against you and you alone, God, I've, I've sinned. I've done what is evil in your sight, so you're right in your verdict and justified when you judge. David got the weight of his sin. Acknowledge what you've been searching for. Bring the shame out. Hear the things I've grabbed a hold of. Acknowledge the weight of your sin. Acknowledge the weight of your sin that took a cross to take care of it. That the sword fell on Jesus. Acknowledge the weight of your sin. Secondly, boldly proclaim the promises of grace. Boldly proclaim the promises of grace. Here's the thing. In the gospel, when we understand the gospel, those sins that we're repenting of have already been forgiven even before we repent. Because of the blood of Christ, Revelation 19 is a reality for us now. That's how we're viewed in heaven, as the pure, spotless bride. So, so boldly proclaim that grace, that, that, that when Christ comes into my life, I'm eternally secure. I'm, I'm, I'm unchangeably forgiven. The wedding party is a reality for the believer today. And so we can repent with reckless abandon. We don't need to hold back. We don't need to hide anymore. Why? Because Jesus has already thrown his arms around you before you even began to repent. Nothing to hide, nothing to fear. And, and this is why I'd say this, that, that in a church that is understanding this grace, that's, that's living out this gospel, there's gonna be a culture of transparency where people aren't hiding, where, 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 where leaders and small group leaders and pastors aren't trying to pretend to be something that they're not because, because we recognize, no, I'm not that, I'm, but for Christ I am. There isn't a, a, a spirit of triumphantism of, of you just don't have the victory in Christ. No, because we get it. We, we understand how difficult this is. That we're all broken, but we're loved. That we're sinners, but we're redeemed. We don't need to wear the, the labels of brokenness anymore. And, and yeah, I pursue broken things. I go after spiritual prostitutes, but I, but I know that I'm loved and redeemed, and so I can repent, I can turn. Here's the last thing as we do this repentance. As you, as you acknowledge your sin, the weight of your sin, as you boldly claim the promises of grace, I would say this, to do this in community. You're saying, for sure, it's vertical. It's between you and the Lord as you repent. But I love how James 5, 16 says, confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. There's something about the community around us. I love in Revelation 19 where it says that they sang together, they worshiped together, that, that when we deal with our shame and we turn and repent, we say, I'm not believing this anymore. I'm turning to this. Something changes even horizontally. They're worshiping together. It says they're singing together. And in verse five and six, I love this, the singing so loud, it sounds like thunder. Right? If you're not a big fan of loud worship, you're gonna hate heaven, all right? These people are singing out loud. There's this new relationship between God and us and, and a new relationship with each other. So no more hiding any longer. No more blaming any longer. Why? Because we see the reality of the gospel now and, and there's a change in how we relate to each other. 
And we begin to see each other with eyes of grace. And, and we forgive more easily. And, and, and people who are struggling, they're not an inconvenience in our life anymore because we want to do life together. We, we understand, man, people struggling, that is why we're here. People who, are, who come to worship in weakness are the ones who are celebrated. And I got to tell you, when I see, because the view from up here is different from the view from down there. And I, and I get to look and I get to see and I, I know some of the stories. And, and so when I see people walk in to worship and they walk in broken under the weight of shame, broken under anxiety and depression, broken in fear, yet they still come in. I'm going to tell you, I look at you and I go, man, you're my hero. You are someone that I celebrate. I mean, th that's when we understand the gospel. That's what, what we start to celebrate, more of that. But listen, if, if you're caught in habitual sin, if you're caught in shame and you're not accountable with, to anybody else, start to be honest with yourself. When, when you fail and fall and fail and fall and fail and fall, well, I'm just battling. You're not battling anymore. You're defeated. Be honest about it and grab some people around you and begin to truly repent because repent is more than remorse. It's a change. It's I'm not gonna pursue that any longer. Now, there, there's, there's risk in that. There's risk in doing that in community. But it produces humility. And it's your path to freedom and joy. It's, it's hard root work, but there's joy in that. And as the worship team comes up, as we end off this morning, listen, listen, the way we deal with shame is we don't avoid it. We resolve it. The way to deal with shame is we, we don't avoid it, we resolve it. Eustace came to realize, man, I can't peel this off on my own. Only God can come and take my skin off. Only, only when I let him pierce deep into this root of my shame. When I stop blaming others, when I, when I understand my guilt before God, I take responsibility, but I grab a hold of the truth of God's grace. And I stop turning, uh, I stop running to those, those things horizontal to grab. And I, I start to see, man, I, I'm covered in these scales because I keep grabbing them to cover myself. But, but allow the gospel to pierce deeply. Allow the gospel to say, turn from that. Believe this more. The struggle, the struggle begins to carry more weight than the joy of the gospel when what I've grabbed to cover is more important than the gospel. Did you get that? The, the struggle becomes more real than the joy of the gospel when what I've grabbed to cover myself carries more weight than the gospel. When we step outside of Jesus, Jesus who takes everything for us, Romans 8 says nothing can touch us, nothing or no one can grab us and take away our joy. When we're in Christ, when we step outside of that, when we reach horizontal, when we go after spiritual prostitutes, we come out from behind Jesus trying to cover ourselves. We make ourselves vulnerable to condemnation, to shame, to guilt, to idolatry. And the weight of shame grows more because I'm putting my hope in what I'm grabbing for more than coming in behind Jesus and resting in the hope of Christ. So this morning, my question is this, what are you resting in? What carries more weight for you today? What speaks a louder truth than the truth of the gospel for you today? That today you would turn from that 
It's not a one-time deal. It, 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 it's going to be today and then tomorrow you'll be tempted again. Satan keeps throwing more and more prostitutes at us to grab a hold of. And, and maybe tomorrow, again, it's a repentance. And again, the next day. And the next day to keep turning and saying, no, my weight is on Jesus. My hope is in Jesus. Would you stand with me before we sing? I want, I want to read a prayer for us to help us in this process of what this looks like to repent, to turn. It's from a book called Valley of Vision. It's Puritan Prayers. Let, let me read this over you. It's going to be on the screen as well. I'm a shell full of dust, but animated with an invisible rational soul and made new by an unseen power of grace. Yet I'm no rare object of valuable price, but one thing, one that, that has nothing and is nothing, although chosen of thee from eternity, given to Christ and born again, I'm deeply convinced of the evil and misery of a sinful state, of the vanity of creatures, but also of the sufficiency of Christ. When thou wouldst guide me, I control myself. When thou wouldst be sovereign, I rule myself. When thou wouldst take care of me, I suffice myself. When I should depend on thy, thy providings, I supply myself. When I should submit to thy providence, I follow my will. When I should study, love, honor, trust thee, I serve myself. I fault and correct thy laws to suit myself. Instead of thee, I look to man's approbation and am by nature an idolater. Lord, it is my chief design to bring my heart back to Thee. Convince me that I cannot be my own God or make myself happy, nor, to restore, nor, nor my own Christ to restore my joy, nor my own spirit to teach, guide, and rule me. Help me see that grace does this by providential affliction. For my credit is good, thou dost cast me lower. When riches are my idol, thou dost wing them away. When pleasures is my all, thou dost turn it into bitterness. Take away my roving eye, curious ear, greedy appetite, lustful heart. Show me that none of these things can heal a wounded conscience or support a tottering frame or uphold a departing spirit. Then take me to the cross and leave me there. Let's sing together.